You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So I'm going to give you a bit of a backstory to introduce my guest today because I've known him for at least 10, if not more years. So once upon a time, I was invited to speak on a panel at a political conference in Washington, D.C., and I found myself sitting between a congressman and a New York City councilman, staring out at an audience of mostly political types. And by that, I don't mean to insult anybody, but if you go to a political conference, a lot of people are in ties, blazers, khakis, dresses for ladies, etc. It's, it's usually business casual. And I usually don't do that. I'm usually in jeans and some sort of long sleeve shirt to hide my tattoos. But in any case, I was looking across the room and I saw towards the back two guys that were standing either against the wall or sitting against the wall is a is a fairly packed house so to speak and I noticed they didn't look like everybody else in other words they kind of looked like me regular kind of blue collar guys in jeans and they were watching intently so after the panel was done either I went to them or they came up to me in any case that was the first time I met Terry Bowman my guest now Although I consider Terry a friend, and he is one of the nicest individuals you'll ever meet, and you'll hear him, I don't think he and I have spoken all that much in the last 10 years or so. We're friends on Facebook. I follow him. I think he follows me. Um, But a couple of years after we met, I stopped attending political conferences. I found them to be somewhat of a waste of time. And he got more active in the political world. So... His day job, and this is what I find fascinating about Terry, is that he's an auto worker full time. He he lives in Michigan. He works at a UAW represented auto plant, and he's also a former UAW member. Terry is also a strong advocate for right to work laws. And for those of you that know my background, I am a former union representative in a right to work state, and I understand both sides of this coin, so to speak. But for those of you that are unfamiliar with right to work laws, what they mean is very simply in a state that has a right to work law, a union cannot require payment from workers as a condition of employment. In other words, workers in a right-to-work state do not have to pay union dues or union fees to keep their jobs. They have a freedom of choice, so to speak. They have the freedom to choose whether or not they pay union fees. Now, from the union's point of view, unions have to represent workers even if they're not paying union fees if it's in a right-to-work state. There are currently 27 right-to-work states across the United States, and that number has grown quite a bit in the last 15 to 20 years. There are 23 states still that are called non-right-to-work states that allow for employees to be terminated from their employment for refusing to pay union fees. In other words, if you go to work at a, in a non-right-to-work state at a unionized company, you can be required to pay union fees or get fired. So where Terry lives and works 
once upon a time in Michigan, there was no right to work law. However, in 2013, which was after I met Terry, the state adopted a right to work law. However, since the 2022 midterm elections, there is more buzz in the press about the Democrats and the Democratic governor who controls the state legislature and the and the passage of laws in the state of repealing Michigan's right to work law. So even before all this came about coming into 2023, I've wanted to have Terry on the podcast for a while. And because we kind of travel in different circles and, you know, I'll message him or vice versa, um, we haven't been able to connect. But as as more of these stories have come out about Michigan potentially repealing right to work, it was really fitting to get Terry onto the podcast. So here's Terry Bowman. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Terry Bowman, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. I think it's been over a decade since I first met you. And so well, I kind of I keep up with you here and there. Yeah, well, Peter, first of all, it is an honor and a privilege for me to be with you once again. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, it has been about a decade since you and I have talked. But I know we're both very busy uh, in the realm of uh, unionism in the United States and uh, I'm happy to be here to talk about what's happening here in Michigan. Well, and yeah, the first time you and I met was down in D.C., and I recall that you were, um, you were or are a, uh, an employee of one of the big three. And I want to say Ford, but I'm not sure. Uh, absolutely correct. So now I have uh, a little over 26 years as a literally a line auto worker at Ford in the Ypsilanti plant here in Michigan. And uh, my whole life changed back in 2010 when my local union, which is Local 898, came out with a newsletter that said, Healthcare Reform, What Would Jesus Do? Now, I had worked for Ford for about 13 years, and I had always been a UAW member. I mean, obviously, we know that uh, you are required uh, when Michigan was not a right-to-work state, to join and pay dues to a union as a condition of employment. So for 13 years, I had always uh, paid money to the union, even though I did not like the political and social activity that the union uh, was a part of. But when this article came out that said, health care reform, what would Jesus do? It really made me angry because at the time I was taking classes in a Christian seminary, and I was really interested to see what the this article would say, how they would spin uh, the words in the Bible to make them fit to what they wanted to say. And let me tell you, after I read the article, uh, the veins of my forehead popped out, the anger that I felt, the righteous anger that I felt uh, made me stand up and say, you know what, somebody's got to do something about this. And I stormed off out of the break room while all the other workers were looking at me like I had lost my mind. And in a way, I had I, it's exactly what I had done. So my wife and I talked about it. And in, shortly thereafter in 2010, I formed a, a group called Union Conservatives because I knew there was a lot of workers around the United States that liked their jobs like I did. I love building vehicles. I love putting America on wheels. I love being a part of that, uh, that whole culture here in Michigan that my father worked at. I have many aunts and uncles and cousins that work for Ford Motor Company. And so I was proud of the job that I would do. Unfortunately, it comes with a price, and that price is the fact 
that if I wanted to work, I had to pay dues to this outside third-party agency uh, that unfortunately engaged with my money in um, political and social agendas that I disagreed with. So we started growing union conservatives throughout Michigan, and then it grew in Ohio and Indiana. And then I was asked to testify in front of the House Oversight Committee in February of 2012, uh, which is about the time you and I met um, uh, for a hearing called Protecting Union Workers from Forced Political Contributions. And uh, that hearing went so well in Washington, D.C., that immediately uh, Fox News uh, asked me to be on with uh, Neil Cavuto at the time. And then that led to um, other uh, hits with uh, Megyn Kelly and uh, over to uh, Fox Business and uh, immediately, union conservatives started growing around the United States. So I knew there was a hunger for representation uh, for people who loved their jobs. They just hated the fact that unions were engaged so much in, in these political and social uh, ideologies that many, many workers disagreed with. So th- uh, that led to me becoming the face of right to work in Michigan uh, in 2012. And as you know, and uh, many of your listeners may know, that Michigan, believe it or not, Michigan, a heart of the UAW, uh, passed and, and became a right to work state in December of 2012. And in almost the blink of an eye, because I was actually working in Michigan at the time when the, I actually was asked a question by an employee in a workforce, you know, what happens if Michigan becomes a right-to-work state? And I was like, well, you know, it's the home of the UAW, home of Jimmy Hoffa Sr. Yes. I think hell will freeze over when that happens. And then, like, <laughs> within a week and a half or two weeks after that, it flipped. Well, like, it flipped. Like, and I guess it, hell is frozen over. Well, you know, and what we really needed is we needed a personal story. We needed to make the case of why it's so important to individual union workers for them to be able to hold their unions answerable and accountable. Because when you think about it, Peter, without a right-to-work law, uh, unions can throw their feet up on the desk, uh, smoke their cigars, which, you know, uh, you know, uh, more power to <laughs> the UAW got a history of cigars. <laughs> I think they just, and, they had spent about $60,000 in cigars exactly. a few years ago. And, uh, you know, specifically with the UAW, we just are coming off about an eight year federal corruption trial where some of our uh, presidents are in, still serving time in jail and uh, many union leaders. So without that right to work law, Uh, It really leaves workers no ability to hold their union officials answerable and accountable. Now, you know, we can talk about all the statistics and how right to work uh, is increases the jobs and and brings people back to the state. And we've got those statistics. We know they're good. But what I focus on is the freedom issue, the moral issue, uh, and, and why it's so personal to individual union workers in the state of Michigan to be able to have that choice to hold their unions answerable and accountable. Um, So we've been right to work for about a decade. And uh, as you know, uh, now that Michigan has flipped to a Democrat-controlled legislature, uh, we are in danger of a repeal uh, coming up here very soon. Well, and I've seen that over the last three weeks or maybe a month or more that um, they're looking at repealing right to work. And where does that stand right now? 
Well, uh, what we know is they're keeping very quiet about it. Um, uh, the fact that uh, our governor, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, um, did not even mention it in her state of state address a few weeks ago uh, shows you how divisive this, um, this repeal really is. There's been some polling done in Michigan that shows that uh, uh, three to one, the citizens agree with the fact that no worker should be forced to pay uh, union dues as a condition of employment. And that is even more exciting when you know that union workers themselves, two to one, say that uh, union members should have the right to choose for themselves whether or not to pay dues to a union as a condition of employment. So the polling is against uh, Governor Whitmer and the Democrat legislature in the state of Michigan, but that doesn't control them. We know what controls them, and that's uh, the union officials who unfortunately hold the purse strings uh, of all the unions themselves. Uh, Those are the ones that they're really serving. They're not serving the individual worker or the rank and file. They're serving those union executives who can make the choices of where that political money goes. Right. Terry, let me ask you a couple questions. And I don't know if you, sure. you'll know the answers to this, but when Michigan went from not right to work to right to work and people all of a sudden had the freedom to stop belonging to unions, saving their money, how how many members left or resigned their membership within the union? Not all well, of us, but over a period of time. Sure. Well, we know as of now, at least 140,000 workers have exercised their freedom of choice and opted out of union membership since the right to work law was passed in Michigan. Um, but And that includes everybody. That includes private sector workers as well as public sector workers. And I think one uh, thing that's important to understand is public sector workers now nationwide are protected and have their right to work guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution. And that the, happened through the Janus. The, Right. Yeah, through Janice versus Ask Me. Um, so, given that, and and I guess another question, kind of related, is sure in your UAW contract. Although you're in a right to work state, is there an automatic trigger that if the state legislature flips and it makes it not right to work again, you automatically are going to have to pay again? That is correct. I will have no choice. Um, I will either have to. Um, paying the union full union dues, or I go back to a U.S. Supreme Court case um, where I it's called Beck versus right. the Communication Workers of America, where I union. can actually exercise my Beck rights, where I withdraw my membership out of the union um, and only pay what the union decides, not the government or not anybody else, but what the union says is what their true cost is of representing me in the bargaining unit. Now, we know, it, and in fact, uh, when I testified in the House in 2012, that uh, th- that's really not an accurate number, that the union engages in political activity all the time. They just may call it something different, like um, uh, education or uh, organizing or, or whatever it may be called. Uh, it's still a political activity by the union. Yeah, and you become what's called an agency fee payer as opposed to a full-fledged member. Correct. Yep. Uh, so yeah. those are my choices if Michigan repeals the right-to-work law, which 
they have in the House a uh, majority of 56 to 54, so it's slim, but we, we know not of any Democrat member uh, who is not going to vote for the repeal. So uh, it looks like it's going to happen if it comes up. So you touched on something, and, and um, I think it's, it's worth mentioning that approximately, and I, it may be up or down, I'm not really sure where the numbers are these days, but approximately 40% of union members vote Republican. And then when you have these unions that are getting into very hard left or Democrat policies or politics, there's a tendency to, to alienate roughly 40% of your membership. And I've always felt, even going back to my old union days when I was a union rep, like if, if unions stayed focused on representation only and not getting into all these political issues, which, you know, even back 30 years ago when I was in the union, you know, they're into politics, you, you wouldn't alienate a high percentage of your members, whether it's 40% or 60% on the flip side. Right. Well, stay true to what you're supposed to be doing is representing people on the job. Well, that's what I always say. I always say I'm not anti-union. I'm actually just pro-union worker. And in the fact of what unions were created to do, and that's to represent the workers in the realms of the workplace. Uh, I have no problems with that. Um, but I, I also believe it has to be a voluntary relationship. I don't think anybody should be forced into uh, again, supporting an outside agency as a condition of employment, even if the uh, union did not engage in politics. But I, I want to uh, kind of uh, touch on what you said there. Um, I, I think we've always known that 40% of union members tend to vote uh, for the Republican side of the aisle. Uh, and we know that a very, very small percentage of all union uh, political activity uh, supports uh, something on the on the Republican side, but I have to tell you, Peter, I saw uh, very big uh, jumps in those numbers in the 2016 presidential election, all the way up to the 2020 presidential election. For some reason, uh, and and this is something that uh, might be a different uh, podcast. Donald Trump seemed to really engage well with uh, the blue-collar workers around the United States. And I saw unbelievable amounts of union workers willing to wear and openly support Donald Trump over uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016 and then, of course, Joe Biden in 2020. Um, So I think that that 40 percent is a conservative, no pun intended, a number uh, compared to what we see today. And um, and on top of that, I don't think the union officials really care if they alienate their workers. All they care about is that those union dues keep coming in. Right. Well, it's, you know, for them, if you get the right candidate in, they give you greater power and greater access to the halls of Congress or the state house or whatever. Sure. It's, you know, it's all about political power. It is all about political power, and uh, that's why I say uh, if we repeal right to work in Michigan, who is it really uh, – who is it for? Who is it benefiting by repealing the right to work law? It's not for the rank and file. 
It's not for the individual worker because individual workers, we like our, our freedom, our hard-fought freedom that we fought for over 10 years ago. We like to have that ability to hold our union um, officials answerable and accountable. Well, we know who it's for. Um, it's, it's to benefit union officials who hold those purse strings, who want to be able to do their job uh, and not be held accountable for anything that they do. I mean, without if they repeal this law, it doesn't matter if the union does a good job or a bad job. In the private sector in Michigan, uh, workers will once again be forced to pay them um, uh, for the what they would say is the privilege of working. We say uh, for the right of working and pursuing our happiness by getting a job in, in um supporting our families. So um, it's very clear to me and very clear to the rank and file and to workers on the line that uh, a repeal of a right to work law is all about giving or stripping the power away from individual workers and giving it back to union officials. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, as a former union rep in a right to work state, I get the union's argument in that I shouldn't have to represent somebody who's basically a, quote, freeloader. And I also get the fact that on the other side, nobody should be forced to pay something that they don't want. But that kind of goes to the, um, I I don't like this term that much, but it's the monopoly bargaining status. Mm -hmm. There used to be a a push years ago, um, and I'm going back probably a decade or so, and it's actually coming from professors on the left in academia who were touting or pushing what's called members-only bargaining. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of fell by the wayside. I don't know why. But it would seem as though if the union's doing a really good job to get the benefits of a contract, you have to be a union member. Whereas in the same shop, if you're not a union member, you're not going to get the benefits of that contract. Now, I've, I've had a couple people, I think one of them on the podcast, that said, well, that would be unfair because then management could pay the non-union workers more. Well, duh. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's one of those catch-22s from the union's perspective, I guess. But, you know, if they did a really good job, people would want to join them to get those benefits. Well, and I think what you're talking about is really a model for 21st century unionism, where uh, unions make their case, um, uh, offer exceptional service. Uh, and, of course, people are going to want to pay for that service uh, through their career and through their jobs. Um, but unfortunately, I think unions are stuck in a 1940s, 1950s model where they believe they have to um, browbeat and, and uh, force everybody uh, into supporting them as the only kind of business model that they know and they understand. Um, and, uh, you know, th- there's nothing stopping these unions from doing a members-only contract. I know that a lot of the details of a union in the public sector are decided between the union and the negotiations with the state legislature, um, and they can do that. Um, in the private sector, I, I've when I have debated union officials, uh, whether it's on a college campus or where it's at, uh, they'll call me a freeloader, and, and I will say, you know, quite frankly, that I'm actually not a 
freeloader or a, um, a free rider. I'm actually a forced rider because even uh, in a right-to-work state, I am still forced to accept the union contract and to accept the union as my primary uh, bargaining agent. And uh, you and I both know that uh, the unions negotiate in the contract, and it's usually the very first paragraph in the contract that says that they agree to be the uh, exclusive uh, representation agent of everyone in the bargaining unit, whether or not they are a member or a non-member. And that way, unions force people like me who have exercised their right to work and have pulled my membership out that I still have to accept their representation and their contract if I want to work at my facility. Yeah, and that's that's the recognition clause that's found in most contracts like Article 1, maybe Article 2. Yeah. That the unions recognize as the exclusive bargaining representative. But there's nothing stopping them from doing a members-only contract. And uh, I think a, there was even a, um, a, Supreme Court, a Supreme Court decision where in one of the uh, opinions, it actually talked about a members-only contract. So I don't think there's anything forcing them except the fact they never want to give up that exclusive representation because of the, uh, some of the issues that you talked about where somebody could represent themselves and maybe get a better contract uh, than what the other members are doing. Yeah. And, and it's a valid concern, but then again, if you've got dedicated members with the right to strike and all that sort of stuff, you know, it's, it's a whole balance of power thing. Exactly. So, so let me ask you, you, uh, you mentioned before I hit the record button that you had gotten into politics a little bit and then, obviously are not so much involved, but now you're starting to get sucked back in kind of like Michael Corleone and Godfather three, just, <laughs> just when you thought you were out. Uh, right. So um, uh, everywhere from 2016, I was asked to um, be a co-chair of the Donald Trump uh, for Michigan campaign. So I got involved with that very heavily um, where I went around Michigan and, and talked to union workers and blue collar workers uh, and even white collar workers um, about supporting Donald Trump for president here in Michigan. Uh, In 2016, we were successful, and and Michigan actually uh, uh, voted for Donald Trump. And, um, you know, that was an exciting time uh, for a lot of blue-collar workers in Michigan. Uh, When when he was the president-elect, he came back to Michigan to do one more rally in the Grand Rapids area. And he asked two people... Uh, to speak from the podium. One of them was Ronna McDaniel, who is now the RNC chair. Uh, mm-hmm. And he asked me uh, to speak at the podium because he knew how important blue collar support was for him uh, in in the state of Michigan. And, uh, you know, he, he had that ability to connect with workers, I think because of the fact he spent his whole career on the job site, talking to electricians, talking to the building trades, uh, having relationships with all of these workers, and and it was a natural fit for him in 2016. So um, after that, I became the uh, co-chair of the Michigan Republican Party for a couple years and uh, was involved in all that comes with uh, party politics in the state of Michigan, and then again was the national chair of the Workers for Trump uh, in 2020. So um, again, was very, very busy every day after work, still working right 
my regular 40-hour or more job at Ford, but then uh, spending my weekends uh, when I wasn't working and evenings uh, helping out uh, the president then uh, to try to get reelected. Since the elections of 2020, I had some more time on my hand and uh, was involved in some public policy um, uh, issues with an organization that I'm a part of now called the Institute for the American Worker, and uh, still very involved with that. Uh, And unfortunately, since uh, November elections, I'm, as you said, pulled back into the right-to-work battle here in the state of Michigan. So looking forward to educating the people of Michigan and educating uh, everyone who will listen um, the importance of a right-to-work law and how important it is to individual workers. Yeah, I should mention, I've had Vinnie Vernuccio on uh, two or three times over the last year or so. Yeah, Vinny's great. Um, he was, uh, at the time of the right-to-work battle in Michigan, the labor policy director of Michigan's think tank called uh, the Mackinac Center. Yep. And uh, him and I uh, became uh, fast friends and uh, to this day still work uh, day-to-day on issues uh, that affect union members nationwide. So uh, happy to continue that relationship and happy to continue fighting for the rights of individual workers. Because, you know, uh, workers do need protection and do need somebody to fight for them, even against the very unions that say they have their best interests in heart. And uh, that's exactly what we do. What, let me ask you a question. As, as a current Ford employee, on, sure. a, on a shop floor with the UAW representing everybody, including you, mm-hmm. do you get catch flack? So in 2012, uh, during the battle, uh, the right to work battle, I, sh- I got some, uh, well, not only flack, but, you know, some crazy threats and, and um, other things that happened, not only uh, from UAW members, but from union members around uh, the state of Michigan um, as a whole. Um, since since that, however, it, it's really quieted down. Uh, I work side by side with people I've worked with for 26 years who continue to pay union dues uh, and are continue to be friends uh, that we were beforehand. So one of the things uh, union officials used to like to say is that uh, right to work divides uh, the rank and file, and it doesn't at all. Uh, we work side by side with each other. Um, and there's never been an issue with that uh, at all. So the fact also that I'm uh, somewhat of a public figure, figure, I mean, I do a lot of radio, I do uh, TV interviews, I write newspaper articles, um, I'm kind of in the, in the public realm, uh, keeps me pretty well protected from union um, official uh, pushback as well, because they know if, if any if they were to do anything to me, it would become a public story. So right. a lot of times I'm talking to other workers uh, who may feel that pushback, and I help them out as well and, and tell them what kind of rights uh, they have to fight back against uh, the intimidation that comes with anybody wanting to exercise their right to work uh, rights and freedoms and protections because they don't have that public face like I do. And, and they're the ones who really need the help and the protection ongoing uh, against their own union officials. Yeah. Well, I know as a union rep in a right-to-work state, which was Arizona 30-some-odd years ago, 
you know, we had members and non-members. It was probably a 70-30 or 75-25, and it, it went up or down depending on contract year. But, you know, everybody knew each other. Of course, we as the union reps knew who the non-members were. Sometimes they were, you know, snarled at, so to speak. But, sure. you know, everybody pretty much on the plant floor, you know, everybody's fine. Now, during contract time, if there's a strike, which we had back in the 80s, you know, they crossed the picket line, then they were despised. But it was, you know, for the most part, day-to-day stuff, it it wasn't that big of a deal. Well, you know, I used to have a board on my wall that I called my hall of shame, uh, my wall of shame, actually, that any time I got called a name, I would write it on there. And, of course, the name (laughs) that I was called more often than not was scab, right? Right. And, uh, you know, which is not technically the right term. Exactly. But um, it it seems to be a go-to term when people get angry and they don't really know how to argue correctly. They just throw out insults. And whenever I would get called a scab, I would say, thank you. And they would look at me kind of funny and I'd say, well, what is a scab? It's actually a, a, a covering for an old wound so that healing can begin. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, unionism has become somewhat diseased. Uh, and I think there definitely needs to be healing inside of uh, unionism in the United States. Uh, the, the old model of, of compulsory unionism, I think, is old and outdated. And it goes with the National Labor Relations Act that, of course, was passed uh, almost 100 years ago. So I think new unionism is all about voluntary um, relationships with a, a union being able to sell themselves to the workforce, um, have an automatic recertification votes every three years, every four years, so that uh, union members have the ability to say whether or not they even want to be unionized by that particular union. Let's say a, uh, a, a place like where I work at, of course, the UAW has been there for 80 years. Uh, what if we wanted to have the Teamsters uh, as our bargaining agent? What if we wanted to have another kind of union uh, come in and, and be our bargaining agent instead of the UAW because of the fraud, because of the corruption that's been going on over the last 10 years? Well, it's very difficult um, None of us, uh, not even anybody in my dad's generation, ever had the ability to vote whether or not they wanted to be unionized. They were just forced into it as a condition of employment. So let's say automatic recertification votes came up. We were able then to say, hey, uh, UAW, we appreciate what you've done in the past, but uh, we want to go another way. Um, I think that is the future of unionism. Um, and I would love to see it uh, come to fruition in my lifetime. Well, you know, if you could change unions or even decertify it, it would just take the numbers, which is difficult to get in a plant as large as yours is. But the if you went to a members-only type of bargaining, then you wouldn't necessarily have to have recertification elections. That's correct. Um, But as I mentioned before, I I don't think a union will ever be willing to get rid of their exclusive representation of the whole bargaining unit. That um, they're willing to give up their right to work, um, but they they will. Although they'll fight for it and they'll cry about it, they'll give up their right to work uh, 
before they give up their exclusive representation abilities for the bargaining unit because that's where they get what they think is their real power. I say the power comes from the workers and the workers voluntarily giving it to them instead of being compelled or forced uh, into it. Yeah. You know, the other model that I've always felt would be more successful, and this is actually returning even further back in history, is if you were to take, depending on the industry, depending on the union, but if unions got back to the old AFL model, which was more trades-type unions, and the trade unions still do this, but if they were to, for example, in healthcare, where there's a, a drastic or catastrophic nursing shortage, have the unions start the nursing schools. Teamsters start the, the truck driving schools, which I think they're just starting to with some sort of, um, I think Yellow Freight's also involved in it. But, you know, be become the supplier of labor as opposed to just the, for lack of a better term, um, dues taker. Right. And, and I do think some unions are trying to do that. I think here in Michigan, the IBEW, um, uh, although they're they're usually fighting very hard against issues like right to work, I do think that they uh, give their members a lot of education and necessary education to make right. themselves better in the long run. Well, in the IBW, that was actually our sister union when I worked for the old Mont Bell, but um, the IBW has kind of like the industrial side and then the trade side. So they've mm-hmm. always had the apprenticeship programs for the trade side. And I'm not sure what they're doing on the, industrial side where they represent workers at say Verizon or elsewhere. But um, it's that trade union model where they would take people, bring them in operating engineers, for example, the teamsters talked about it. And this is going way, way back, but you know, in 2005, 2006, when change to win split off from the AFL CIO, that was the model they were talking about early on. SEIU would have healthcare, Teamsters would have transportation. United here would have hospitality, but they were going to, they were talking about doing like schools to bring workers up, train them and dispatch them out to jobs. And then of course, change to wind just kind of fell apart. Uh, And I think again, the 21st century unionism would see a lot of that uh, come back into play and unions being service organizations uh, more than compulsory forced uh, union type of organizations that they are today. So uh, I'm on board with what you're saying, and I think I uh, uh, would love to see more of that in the long run. Yeah. Problem is, I think it's going in the opposite direction. It's, it is. We're, we're moving more towards state-run unions or state-run partnerships with unions, sectoral bargaining out in California with the fast food industry, for example. Correct. And uh, I, I think you know about that a little more than I do, but uh, um, it, it worries me uh, as to what's happening. California is always a, uh, a hot mess, uh, what I would call, in the yeah. realms of, of labor. And uh, those are the, that area is where I always look at to say, uh-oh, what are we heading for in some of the, some of the labor markets here in the Midwest and, and the Rust Belt, the old Rust Belt, is look at what's happening in the state of California. Well, and unfortunately, what they've been doing is a little, a little frightening. It's, it is a union-controlled state, um, and I, haven't, I didn't coin this term, but it's the petri dish of bad ideas. 
<laughs> so well, and, and uh, we know the state of New York is is very bad as well. So um, yeah. you know, um, hopefully we'll see a change. And I think with people like uh, you out there, people like uh, uh, union workers who are willing to stand up and fight for uh, their rights, freedoms, and protections. Um, I think we can make the argument why it would be not only a better America, but a better workforce and a better labor force in the long run if uh, we took these issues seriously and fought for individual worker rights. Well, and and the problem is, um, and it's unfortunate that, you know, unions who started out with good intentions and good ideas have become essentially wards of the state. And as a result of that, the more you move in that direction, the less voluntarism comes, using Samuel Gomper's term, Yes. Um, and more compulsion. And if you've got more compulsion, ultimately that's going to be corrupting. And then the whole, the whole movement, so to speak, has been corrupted. Exactly. And I think that's what happened to the UAW. I mean, um, most of yeah. the members liked their union, um, however, over the years, the fact that they were in the heart of Michigan, uh, which was not a right-to-work state up until a decade ago, they were able to do whatever they wanted because they knew the majority of their membership uh, had to force had to um, had to support them financially as a condition of employment. So there was no incentive for them to get better. There was no incentive for them. Uh, to not be corrupt, and um, and that leads to a whole culture uh, that, in the long run, uh, damages workers and uh, takes advantage of workers' dues money. Well, so you're keeping up, and this I think this is due to the corruption. Um, the current UAW leadership is having their first ever election where the members can vote on the leaders. That is correct. That is correct. So um, a lot of the positions have already been voted on and filled. However, um, the last uh, position that they're really uh, focused on is the UAW president because they have to have a 50% plus one vote. Uh, They did not get that last time because they had more than two people running. And so that vote is coming up very soon here. In fact, people are voting now. But uh, since it's in multiple states, it's being done by mail, and it's going to take a while for the ballots to come in. Um, uh, It it looks to me like uh, the candidate from the old Ruther caucus uh, in the UAW, which is really uh, the hand-picked leaders uh, from the UAW uh, come from, uh, is probably going to win. But uh, we don't know that for sure until the uh, votes come in. And, uh, you know, something that us union members have said from the beginning is that, uh, you know, this person is going to win no matter if he got the, the, the number of ballots or not. And uh, uh, hopefully somebody is uh, auditing these, these ballots and, and making sure that uh, they, it is a true representation of what the membership is voting for. Of course, as a non-member, I do not vote. Um, but, uh, you know, everyone around me is talking about it and it looks as if, uh, the, the Ruther caucus candidate, uh, is going to win the election. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, the, the fascinating thing to me was, um, when the election did take place, the, the, out of the 1.1 million ballots that were sent out, 
I think it was over 90% of the membership didn't vote. I, that's uh, incredible, isn't it? Um, yeah. Although, uh, you know, from the people I work with, I don't know of a single person who did not vote. Um, the, the fact that they came out with those statistics uh, is quite shocking. Uh, what does that tell me? Well, uh, if it is true, and, and I don't know whether it is, but let's uh, take their uh, let's take what they're saying as being correct. Uh, that tells me that there's a lot of um, workers out there who don't care one way or the other. They just want to go do their jobs, uh, leave work at the end of the day, go home, and not be bothered by anything. And uh, I find that um, upsetting and, and uh, uh, frightening that workers would have that little uh, invested into their futures. But uh, uh, we'll have to wait and see how this uh, election for the president comes up. Yeah. Well, Terry, where can people find you? I can I can throw some links up to um, any of the recent articles you've written, or or you're probably on the the I four AW site, right? We they can always uh, contact me through the I four AW site. I am on the board of directors, but uh, they can always reach um, uh, through the contact information on I four AW dot org. Um, it stands for the Institute for the American Worker. Uh, it's a Virginia-based organization. I still live here in Michigan, but uh, they can reach me through there. And, of course, uh, they can reach me personally on the social media sites, the uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook as well. So, Very good. Well, I, I thank you for taking your time after work to come on to Labor Relations Radio. It's been a long uh, people, time since we've talked, and I've well, wanted to get yeah. you on for a while. And I know you and I are going to talk a lot uh, coming up here uh, in the future. And uh, I can tell you that I'm looking forward to it. Um, I think um, uh, union organizing is, uh, is um, something that uh, needs to uh, have some light shed on it uh, of what's going on. And um, uh, my company, Ford, of course, is uh, building a huge complex down in the state of Tennessee. Uh, it's going to be called the Blue Oval City, where they're going to be building building all the electric vehicles in the United States. And uh, they're going to be building that. And I know they're going to work with the UAW to try to organize that plant through a neutrality agreement. And, uh, you, you know, I, I think all workers should have the right to have a secret ballot election. Uh, and so we're going to be doing everything we can in, in Florida, or excuse me, in Tennessee, to protect the rights of the new workers coming in um, to the Ford facility down there so that all of them are guaranteed to have a secret ballot election. So hopefully yeah, that's going to be interesting. It's going to be very interesting. And uh, they're also building a facility in Kentucky. So we're going to be working there as well. So looking forward to uh, talking to you in the future. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right, Peter. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Terry Bowman, worker freedom advocate and auto worker, talking about the potential of repeal of right to work in Michigan and whether or not uh, that comes about. It was interesting how he mentioned that the polling demonstrates that three quarters of Michiganders, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, are opposed to forcing people to pay unions to go to work. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. If you want to 
reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners. This is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.